I'm excited. I appreciate our guests. I appreciate the Dave's Picks series that come out, but it feels good to be back to a normal record. And like a, just one that a show that we just randomly picked. Right. That feels good too. It's been a while since we had a show that was like just kind of pure our choice, you know? Exactly. So this upcoming year is going to be an interesting balance because we will have the next episode will be another show of our choice. And then the one after will be Dave's picks. And then I think we'll probably have a lot in the summer that are a lot of episodes that are about shows that we've been to. Cause we're going to try to go to as many dead and co shows as we can this summer. You're right. And um, we have a couple of other special things planned throughout the year. We have one big guest that we're targeting for March. We'll see if we can get him. And otherwise, we're going to just try to get into a nice regularly scheduled rhythm. So if you joined us for our last episode two weeks ago, it was our first experiment with talking about an album rather than a show. Hope that you enjoyed that. We are going to try to do maybe three or four of those throughout the year, maybe once a quarter or once every third of the year. There are a lot of studio albums, but not a, not a limitless number. So I don't really want to like run through them. Right. You know, we can space them out because we just mentioned Dave's picks. Let's get into the days between. So during the days between, we learned that the next Dave's pick that's coming out is going to be from 72 or no. So the the one that's coming out in two weeks is from 77. Seven from Oregon right? 77. But then volume 46 in will April. be from 1972. Right. Right. So you had a good idea for the days between. Lay it on us. Oh, my idea was that uh, we're going to draft our predictions for um, what we think volumes, let's see, 47 and 48 to conclude the year. What do we think and how lucky can we be in guessing what those are going to be? So did you just mean year or do you mean like specific shows? Oh, oh gosh. I meant year. Okay. Um, That's if what you I could thought snipe you meant. the specific show, I, no, I kudos don't think to so. you. I do still have uh, like a this thought of that show that we talked about from the arc of that run of shows at the arc being released as a box set. The April Boston 69 suite. Yes. I would be very intrigued to see what that might look like as a, as a fully released box because they're they're not necessarily like fully in this pattern anymore but there was a time when they really switched up like some boxes would be massive and then like 2 years ago it was eight complete shows and then this past year it was six which is a little bit smaller and then there was the year where it was all 22 or 23 Europe 72 shows but there was also one year where the box set was just like I think it was four shows at um, Giant Stadium. And so I could see them doing a smaller box set, switching it up to like a much smaller box set at a much more reasonable price point to attract 
that. And it would also be interesting to have the decades go for the last three 70s, 80s, 60s. You get a different decade for the three box sets. So that's that my cool. That's my hottest prediction is that the box set is going to be the April at the arc run from 69. I think um I think that that would be like a good October release and yeah, that that's my prediction. What what is your uh so you want to draft years? Yeah. I do. I think that they're going to go kind of in the same style they've done the last 2 years. Um, and kind of mirroring last year as well, where they go back, they start in 77, continue back, and then the last volume of the year, they fly up to the 90s. That's my prediction for this year as well. So I think for volume 47, they're going to keep going back in time to 1970. So 7-0 on volume 47. And I think they're going to jump up to 92 on volume 48. Interesting. Let me just quickly glance through. I don't think they've ever released a 92 show in Dave's Picks or Dick's Picks. Yes, that is correct. There has never been a 92 show released in that's in either series. So that it's would be all, It's only bold takes here on this show. So that's yeah, I'm sticking with it. That is pretty good. I mean, the Dave's Picks series in general is extremely weighted toward the 70s. So I think that 70 I think that's a, a quite a good guess. So this past year, they also did, if you go back to volume 39, so the back half of last year's releases, you have 83, 90, 77, 74, 69, 90. So you have all four decades that the band was active in those six releases. And we know that now they're doing back-to-back 70s shows at the beginning. So I agree with you that at least one of the following two will not be from the 70s. And I think based on the fact that each of the last three years, multiple releases have been not from the 70s. So I am going to agree. I think, well, I'm going to agree and disagree. I don't think that they're going to go to 70. I think they're going to do 77, 72. I'm going to say... think we're due for some we've gotten a lot of late period brent with the last couple we had 90 and 90 are the last two brent era ones i'm going to say we get more of a mid period brent i think that we go to 82 and then i think um because i've got that box set coming out at the end of the year i don't think they would do another 60s show Hmm. All right. You got five seconds. You got to go with your gut. All right. I'm going to say then 82 and um, 91. Okay. So two, two different shows, one Brent era and one in the Vince era. We haven't had a, uh, a Vince show in Dave's picks for a long time. The last one was quickly scanning through, man, it has been so, so long. Has there ever been one? There have been zero Vince shows in the entire history of Dave's picks through 44 Whoa. volumes. So I do feel like we're due 
for that big time. So that's, that's where I'm going. Our joint prediction in 2023, that will change. We'll get a Vince show as part of the Dave's pick series. I hope we do. What does the winner get? If you get even one of these four guesses, right? We'll think of a prize. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You get bragging rights on the show for eternal, eternal glory. Fair. So because we did not do the days between for the WP and 30 um, about the Grateful Dead, their self-titled debut album. We should also mention um, the holidays. The holidays yeah. came and went. Um, you got some Grateful Dead wrapping paper. I You got it for free with your purchase of a Dave's Pick subscription. I right. bought some Grateful Dead wrapping paper from a different source myself. And I got uh, Grateful Dead shirts for everyone in my family as like a, we had a price cap for our gifts. I had my, I was hosting my family here in North Carolina, but I added on to the price cap to get each of them a shirt that I thought would suit them. So I spent a lot of time digging around looking for, well, okay, what color palette does this person usually wear? What's their general style? And it was kind of a fun little thing for, you know, the presents everyone thought were done. And then I went upstairs and got my Jerry wrapping paper gifts and um, nice. presented all of those to everyone. Was there any, um, well, that was one part of the headiness of my Christmas. The other part was our mutual friends and one of our roommates from when we used to live together got me a nitro cold brew maker. And when I opened it, I was 100% sure that he had gotten me a nitrous cracker to just get high on nitrous. I was like, what the hell just happened? What kind of Christmas is this? And then I realized what it actually was and was like, oh, okay. Someone in my household, not going to name names, said, but we can use it to huff nitrous if we wanted to, right? And I was like, I don't know. We're not going to find out. <laughs> so um, it it's a great gift though. It's just really made me laugh at the first thing. And then one of the instructions is, like crack the nitrous thing and then leave it in the fridge overnight. And I was like, wow, ice cold fatties. Here we go. (laughs) Uh, Nice for me. My only grateful dead gift and bad for a podcast I'm wearing them, but you can't see them because I'm not flexible enough. Got this little grateful dead socks with the dancing bears on them, wearing them now. And then uh, driving from, the middle of the country back east i took i-24 east which i'm gonna dub the headiest road in america <laughs> uh be- because in kentucky we drove by the casey jones distillery and then about 10 miles later you see the big sign welcoming you to the state of tennessee so tennessee jed and then yep. as you drive into nashville about an hour later you drive over the cumberland river so back to back to back Grateful Dead songs. And then you know, we kept going through to Atlanta where we saw a brewery for the Terrapin Brewery. So just a bunch of Grateful Dead songs along the drive of I-24 East. So shout out Midwest for being nice and heady. I I know for a fact that Terrapin Brewery is named after Terrapin Station, but I'd be curious if Casey Jones, It I feel like it has to be named after the dead song, unless they're big fans of the lore of the real Casey Jones, but that seems more doubtful to me. So do a quick little research. Um, Casey Jones Distillery, by the way, in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. I kind of think it's because they are into the legend of Casey Jones. No Grateful Dead references on the website. 
which you'd think that it would be pretty prominent if it was because unlike yeah. the Terrapin website, if you go to their bio, it's like the first thing. It's like two friends and deadheads. Yeah. <laughs> like it's like immediate. <laughs> so that's that is still cool. I twenty four. In any case, let's get on with the show. Wednesday, January 17th, 1968 at the Carousel Ballroom, the Grateful Dead played uh, an unofficial opening of what was at that point their venue that they co-owned and co-managed for a very brief period of time. The lineup is what you would expect from 68, 69 Dead, Billy and Mickey. Mickey, who had joined in September of 67, at the very end of the month, and then Jerry, Bob, Phil, and Pigpen. According to my research, this is the 18th show that they had played with Mickey in the fold. So he is very new to mm-hmm. the band still at this point. What's going on at this point in time, January 17th, 1968? The top Billboard song was Hello Goodbye. It was the third of three weeks that it spent at the top of the charts. And then also in the top five, we have Daydream Believer by the Monkees and Heard It Through the Grapevine by Gladys Knight. So some some songs with some serious staying power in the top five that week. Really um, good top five. Yeah. Uh, the top album in the land was Magical Mystery Tour. The Beatles had that uh, at the top of the charts for the first eight weeks of the year and I believe also the last of 67. So like nine weeks for that. And then they were not at the top of the charts again until the very last week of the year with the white album. So the, a a big year for um, the Beatles being on the top of the charts. So birthdays, you texted me about this earlier today and you were like, are you going to be able to read all these on the air? The answer is no. (laughs) January 17th is stacked with noteworthy birthdays. So here's what I cut it down to. Betty white, rest in peace. James Earl Jones, legend. Don Zimmer, a man near and dear to both of our hearts. Yankee legend. Yankee legend, baseball lifer, and former bench coach to another January 17th birthday, Chili Davis, my first favorite baseball player. Andy Kaufman, legendary comic. Tiesto, who I think is a DJ. He's like a modern musician. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steve Earle, Kid Rock, Zoe Deschanel, Michelle Obama, and last but not least, Ben Franklin. But there's more, man. Jim Carrey, Muhammad Ali, Steve Harvey, Lil John, Ray J. I mean, this the list goes on for January 17th. It's a stacked day. So anyway, that's what's happening on January 17th. Most relevant for us is that this show is happening at the Carousel Ballroom. It, the Carousel Ballroom is right in the heart of San Francisco. It was originally known as the El Patio Ballroom, purportedly an Irish dance hall. And it's located on the upper floor of a building that's on the southwest corner of Market and Van Ness. So over time, the bottom level of that building has historically been a car dealership and like a car service center. Um, today it is a, like a multi-purpose music and event space, um, called SVN West. It's currently hosting one of the like traveling immersive Van Gogh experiences. Oh, you went and did that. Um, 
last, yeah. well, now last year. Yeah, I did that in, in Charlotte. It was, it was pretty cool, but you need a really big space to do it. And so this space uh, fits the bill. At this time, it had a capacity of about 3,000 in 1968. Reading reports from this night, it looks like the attendance was in like the hundreds. This was not officially opened yet as a venue. The official opening of the Carousel Ballroom, yeah, was uh, Valentine's Day, 1968. So this was like a soft opening for friends and family sort of a thing. You can kind of feel that. I think it's in the break after the opening song. You can hear Jerry and he's like, "Uh, anyone who knows us, if you could go and get us a Coke, uh, that would be great. And maybe a hammer and some nails. It's like he's, you can tell he's talking to people who are, you know, his buds. So this was operated for just a few months in early 68 as a, quote, social and music experiment, end quote, by a cooperative of the local psychedelic groups at the time. So the Dead, Jefferson Airplane, Quicksilver Messenger Service, and Big Brother and the Holding Company. And um, it was taken over in July of uh, in July of this year by Bill Graham. Um, he originally named it the Fillmore at the Carousel Ballroom, and then he renamed it the Fillmore West. Much more uh, familiar venue to the heads. Uh, again, this was the very first show at this event. Uh, the very last was held on July 4th, 1971. Then it was at the Fillmore West. Bill Graham had five nights of shows headlined by a bunch of different local bands, The Dead, Santana, CCR, Quicksilver Messenger Service. They filmed it all and made a documentary about it called, I think, The Last Nights at the Fillmore that was released in 1972. The Dead played somewhere between 59 and 64 shows at this venue over the years. If you go to different sources, you get different numbers, but... What I can tell is in the six months that it existed as the Carousel Ballroom, they played here 19 times. All sources agree that this show on January 17th was the first, and all sources also agree that the very last was on July 2nd, 1971, during the last week of the Fillmore West. A couple of other pretty legendary shows that happened at this venue over the year. We've got you know some Grateful Dead releases, both as you know, at the Fillmore West and at the Carousel Ballroom. The only one from the Carousel is Road Trips 2 Volume 2, which is that February 14th Valentine's Day show that officially opened the venue. Um, And that one also kind of, interestingly to me, features tracks from other shows that they played at the Carousel throughout January and February as like a, you know, to fill up the last disc. So if you want to get a sense of everything that they were doing beyond this show, you know, the six weeks after, go check out that. The other kind of legendary shows that were here, April 24th of this year, of 1968, Johnny Cash played a show at the Carousel Ballroom, and it was recorded by Bear, by Owsley Stanley, um, for one of his Sonic Journals, and it was released a couple years ago by the Johnny Cash estate in conjunction with the Owsley Stanley Foundation. So you can go check that out. It's a pretty cool show. And then there's another officially released show of um, Big Brother and the Holding Company, It's pretty interesting. This is also from April 68, and it features a lot of their Cheap Thrills album material, which that album didn't come out until later in the year. But it's, you know, Janis Joplin in her prime singing with the band, and it's it's a really good show as well. So this is a pretty legendary venue. 
and there were a lot of really great shows there, even just in the six months that the bands were operating it. When you read the accounts of what was going on around this time within the band, within the culture, pretty much everyone agrees that they were not like capable of doing this as a collective, the dead and all the other people, they didn't really know what they were getting themselves into. They had all the best intentions of what they wanted to do with this space and what they wanted it to be, but they're also extremely young and not, I mean, Bob was 20 years old for this show. Um, Phil was the oldest in the band. He was 27. Uh, Jerry and Billy are 24 to be managing a music venue at that age while you're also trying to get better at your craft and write songs and you know do all that stuff is a pretty bold gambit it didn't you know totally backfire it's not like it bankrupted them but um, I think that when Bill Graham wanted to take it over they were more than happy to have a professional step in and and take the reins they all pretty much agree like in Bill's um, autobiography and in Phil's Phil's doesn't really talk about that much but in Bill's he's like what a mistake. <laughs> like that didn't go well at all. Um, so I think that they kind of all looked back on it like, you know, not a disaster, but not really the best. tour that this was on it wasn't a part of a tour um at this point in time we kind of said this for our other 68 show the band was still largely a local california band um at this point they were really about to set off on their first big journey around the country Um, january and february really kind of beginning the following week they they went out onto the road and then um, i think that that was in the pacific northwest and then they came back to california and then shows just everywhere in february and march all over california and elsewhere uh we talked about this in our 68 show but just in like the span of 68 they played in san quentin prison a renaissance fair um a dance hall a bowling alley a theater at disneyland columbia's library where they had to get snuck sneaked in in um their equipment cases the gym at suny stony brook Central Park, a yacht club, civic centers, arenas, nightclubs, like just everywhere, all sorts of different venues. They were back and forth between the coasts twice in April and May alone. So they were really, really on the road hard in 68. This this is not part of a tour. They're trying to get the club that they had just, you know, purchased up and running. And so they, you know, were just more doing that. But this is a really interesting year, 68 for the dead. This this show in particular is pre-Oxomoxoa. So the only album that they have out at this point is their the album we were just talking about, The Grateful Dead or um, San Francisco's Grateful Dead, depending on who you ask. That was released in March of 67. And then um, you've got Oxomoxoa and Anthem of the Sun still to come. Um, but yeah, just really quite an interesting time this is also a year post their pot bust at Haight ashbury at their at their home it's still 
months before being busted on Bourbon Street. So they are still like very much a part of the culture at this point in time. 67 was the summer of love. They were a a big, you know, they were living in San Francisco during the summer of love, but they were also a big part of like the soundtrack to that period of time. Um, so 68, I think it's a very, one of many very interesting periods for the Grateful Dead. All right. So let's, let's talk about the show in particular. This show was billed as Ben Franklin's birthday show. There's really cool artwork for it that I'll post in the show notes. They were playing with Quicksilver Messenger Service and with Jerry Abrams, so with their co-owners of the venue, Quicksilver. The the poster is really cool. Definitely click on the link and take a look. One thing that's interesting is the cost was $2.50 per ticket. So uh, a far cry from the thousands of dollars that people are paying for one Dead & Co. ticket in San Francisco later this summer. The first recorded live versions of the following songs were played on this night in Grateful Dead history. Born Cross-Eyed, China Cat Sunflower, Dark Star, Spanish Jam, and The Eleven. So Huge debut day. The biggest in their history, I would say. Yeah. I mean, China Cat and Dark Star alone, I think even if it was just those two, based on the high regard that those two songs are held in and what especially Dark Star means in their, you know, their history their legacy but then the fact that you add these all these other ones i mean pretty remarkable so i think that that fact alone how many first versions we have at this show makes this a very noteworthy and worthwhile show for examination but then it's it's also just a, a really good show let's get into it Set list begins with Turn On Your Love Light. I thought that I had a note about this because Love Light is obviously not a very common show opener. So why don't you tell me what you think about this version? And while you do, I'm going to find that note that I had. Sure. I thought um, this kind of goes for the whole show, not just this Love Light. But this mix is very heavy on the pig pen organ. Yeah. Which is so awesome. Like the whole show, you hear him just jamming away on his Hammond. Um, and it's a moving and grooving show opener. Billy and Mickey are really snare heavy, which kind of makes it easy to clap along with this song. Um, and, you know, there's a couple of hiccups. Jerry started his solo in the very beginning, one bar too early, but um, he makes up for it. He's got an absolute ripper at the four minute mark thought Bob was doing awesome stuff during the second solo uh, when Bob was doing like hammer on rhythm bursts. Uh, there's not a lot of improv from Pigpen, and it's just hot and fast service from Jerry on, on multiple occasions. Yeah, I do like it quite a bit. This was the first time they'd ever opened a show with uh, turn on your love light. It was one of four times that they did. 
So very, very rare that you'd get this to open a show. I totally see why they did it, though. This would get the people going. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning, like the first thing that I noticed, and it's about the recording, not this, not the performance of Love Light, but it's a very like dense heaviness to the the recording of this show, I felt. Um, there's this hum in the background of your right side if you're listening to it in headphones that's pretty noticeable. The drums can be pretty difficult to divine at certain points in the show. Bill Snare, especially, I think, comes through pretty clearly, kind of like you were saying, you can really hear the snare. Um, and there's also a couple moments, like around the two-minute mark of this, you can hear some subtle percussion. It sounds like, it almost sounds like a washboard around two minutes, where or like a gear shaker, it's something. Um, so you can still make everything out. Um, but like you're saying, like Pigpen's organ, it's a re- it's really like a show stealer a lot of times yeah. during this. He's also just like playing really, really well. Like what he's right. doing, what he's doing with Jerry soloing, I wrote it down as 230 to 330 is like really, really great. And it it's a, a sign of things to come because yeah, it's really good. But then, so there's that little interplay between those two guys, Pigpen and Jerry. But then around like 545, Phil just starts like bombing away. And he and Bob have this little interplay they're doing where Bob's rhythm is on the lower end and they're working together with that. Um, one of the notes that I wrote was, if you had never heard this band before the show, you would have listened to what Phil and Bob were doing and been like, well, these guys are not ordinary players. Like Phil is not a traditional bassist at all. You listen to what he's doing on this song and it's like, whoa, okay. He's all around. It's not just like a baseline. He is getting funky with it. He's doing some weird stuff. And same with Bob. He's real active in his rhythm throughout. He's changing it up left and right. Um, it's very, very good. And then also there's a lot of showmanship going on with this song, the a little bit higher part. Bob is really giving it his all. He's giving it the gusto. Um, and it, it's cool to hear Pig singing and playing the organ simultaneously because that's not something that you always hear. And like a lot of Europe 72, when you see the videos or when you hear it, you can you can hear when it's a pig band song, he steps up from the organ and goes and stands at the front of the stage and sings. So he's not doing both at the same time. This song, you can hear him doing them simultaneously. And I think that's that's pretty cool. And then even at the end of the show, he's not doing that for the the finale. Um, he, you know, he has a harmonica solo and then he's singing and then he plays the organ a little bit and then he goes back to singing. He's not doing it all at the same time, which I also think part partially is just being like a younger band, maybe not super comfortable playing and singing at the same time, which is not an easy thing to do. Um, but yeah, I did really like this version a lot. I thought that it was a, a really cool way to start the show and just a, a good version of Love Light. Yeah, I think they impressed the family and friends. Um, they have a little break. It's called stage banter on the on the internet archive, um, where Bob says, "I know it's Ben Franklin's birthday, but George Washington has wooden teeth." <laughs> um, but they also kind of confirmed what you were talking about uh, earlier. Jerry's like, "You know, we've been away from San Francisco for a little bit, but it's glad to be back." Yeah, the last time they had played there was Halloween at Winterland, so. That's a pretty long break for them. I mean, yeah, that's a full two and two months and change. In the intervening times, they were they spent November in LA, 
Um, and then they spent uh, December in Massachusetts and New York. So they were kind of East, East Coast bound um, in that latter part of 67. There's also a point when Jerry's like, you know, you can dance. As a matter of fact, everybody should dance. There's no <laughs> point in watching us. We don't do anything that we normally wouldn't do. <laughs> just, just dance, have fun, <laughs> which I thought was some good encouragement. So next up is Dark Star. Again, this is the very first Dark Star that you have. Um, it's is not been released on an album yet. Uh, it wouldn't be for for a little little bit of time after this. And so it's the first version of Dark Star that pretty much everyone in the audience had heard, um, which I think is pretty cool. The hum that I was talking about dissipates for a bunch of this song. It kind of goes away, which is nice. This is a really fast-paced Dark Star, not just in that it's a pretty short, tidy little version, but in that it's played pretty pretty quickly, especially Pigpen. On the organ, he's really kind of do 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 like keeping that part really fast, uh, which I think is kind of cool. But even in its debut version, Jerry just seems to have a handle on like the sound of this song. Don't you think like his playing is just it's great and it it feels like he just knows what to do here. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think kind of to that point, Bob and Phil are still kind of figuring it out. They don't seem to have it like all the way grasped and it kind of feels like they're a little scared to explore with Jerry. Like they're kind of keeping it very traditional, I guess is the word on the rhythm. Like it's, they're just kind of bubbling along and, and marching to quietly too, instead of exploring with Jerry and stuff like that. So yeah, to that point, the rest of the band is a little hesitant. Whereas Jerry is just charging in. in. Yeah. It is interesting that everyone is playing very quietly. The drummers are barely playing anything at all. It's like very soft, subtle, like shakery, like almost like maracas or something like that that's going on with them. But they're not really playing their drums for a lot of this song. Another thing, talking about Pigpen playing organ and singing at the same time, Jerry stops playing guitar entirely when he sings verse one. He is he just puts it down and is just focusing on singing. So it's I don't think it's just Pigpen. I think that they're all getting used to that um which is kind of wild because it they had been a band for almost four years at this point but still i mean i there's that uh cut on either working man's or american beauty that was released a couple years ago for the 50th anniversary we're in the studio jerry's like i just it's so hard to sing and play at the same time and it's like you yeah. make it seem so easy though if it's hard for you what chance does anyone else stand but in any case um so yeah, I mean, interesting to hear the the first Dark Star. I had never thought about like looking that up and seeing like, oh, what was the what was it like the first time they played it? Um, any other yeah. notes? No, it's just cool to hear the first spark of creativity on what would later become their thesis statement. And I did a little research into it. This is like a four and a half, five minute Dark Star. By the end of the year, it would kind of blossom into the twelve to fifteen minute range on average. So they got a little more comfortable with it by the end of the year. It would take a couple of years though for it to really turn into the, you know, 25, 30 minute trip into outer space. But within one year in 68, they do get a little bit more comfortable with it, um, which I thought was neat. That is cool. 
The next song was also debuted on this night in Grateful Dead history, China Cat Sunflower. The cats and flower crown Walking jingle in the midnight sun Cock the dumb boat and triple sill Become mona like a cream So we'll snark out through a dream Night wind So, um, I like this version. This was the first song of the show where I started to notice this. And I find it very interesting. And heads, if you're listening to this, please write us and tell me if you agree, because I'm, I'm very curious to hear what you think. It sounds to me listening to the song that like Jerry singing sounds so much like Robert Hunter singing. Have you ever heard Bob Hunter sing? I don't think so. Bob Hunter has a very distinctive way of singing and the way that Jerry is singing on this song and then other songs that they're debuting. Um, like this one and cryptical and a little bit of morning Dew. it sounds really to me like he's just imitating Bob Hunter, which makes sense if you think about it, because with China cat sunflower, there's a really great anecdote that I've read from Bob Hunter where he's like, I wrote China Cat Sunflower and the rhythm was entirely different than what Jerry did. Like it was nothing at all like what became the Grateful Dead version. And so I perform it sometimes in solo shows and I play it the way that I wrote it. But you can picture a world where he'd write the lyrics to these songs and then perform it for Jerry. And then Jerry would take it and make it his own from a, from a songwriting perspective. And so it's interesting that he would be you know, a little bit of imitating Bob's style. Yeah. Uh, but it really sounds, I'll send you a link after the show and you can listen to Bob singing and then go back and listen to this and you'll be like, oh yeah, that totally sounds like it. But anyway, um, that's kind of interesting to me. For this being the first version of China Cat, I thought it was excellent. Yeah, it's really good. So to kind of keep going on the vocals point, what I noticed is that Jerry's going low on the vocal. Like it's, we're at his floor on the vocal range, um, which is fine. But I, I'm wondering if this is in an, a little bit of a different key um, mm. that the, he would change later on um, so that he could sing it a little more comfortably. It's tough to tell because they're playing it so fast. You almost yeah, can't tell. Like, it is really it's fast. In, it's really quick. But it's so crystal clear. Like they're hitting every note right on point. Bob's rhythm, pig yeah. pen's organ. The organ is mo- his fingers are moving a hundred miles an hour. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, that's what I noticed about the vocals. Like it sounds like he's trying to go as low as he can while still sing. Um, it's a great theory. I, if, if someone who's like a musicologist type of person who has a real good sense of these things, uh, listens and has, uh, an opinion about that um definitely let us know because that yeah that's a really interesting point dave it is that's part of what bob hunter's voice is like that's different from jerry's it's more Mm. it's more like a guttural sound that's that's 
that's more baritone than tenor. Yeah. That's dramatic to call it guttural, but yeah, it's more baritone than tenor. And so, um, he sings more definitely from like the back of his throat. Whereas with Jerry, it's almost like he's like just letting the words like, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) They're just, they're just, you know, dancing right out. Whereas Bob, it's more, it sounds like more of an effort. Like it's coming from his diaphragm. Number six, China Cat, the standalone China Cats on Heady version. Wow. Yeah. And like you talked about, it's it's really good. It is. You know why? I, I have a theory that part of the reason why it is rate, rated so highly is because the transition from this into the 11 is smoking hot. Masterclass. Absolutely. It took me about 35 to 40 seconds to realize that like the track was labeled the 11 after the transition. And then on re-listens, you can kind of only tell because there's like that little half second pause, you know, for the internet to load the next thing and play the 11 because the transition's beautiful, like you said. amazing that they were able to do it so well when they had never played either of these songs live before (laughs) yeah with within the song itself like the transition within the 11 from the normal time signature to the 11 8 time signature little clunky but like from china cat to the 11 when they kind of just morph the songs into one another it's really good Totally, totally right. And actually, I listened to that part where they kind of like it kind of just lightly falls apart a little bit. <laughs> um, I listened to that a bunch of times because, as I've said many times on the show, I find that to be like some of the most interesting Grateful Dead music is when it seems like they're in, you know, one of those old mining carts and they're veering around a corner and it's about to fall off the track and then it slams back onto the track and they keep going. And that's kind of what happens here. The beginning, they are out of the chute so fast going 90 miles per hour into the 11. And then that part where it it transitions um, before they get into the first verse, it does, they start to get the speed wobbles a little bit, (laughs) but then they, they get back into it and they, they, pull it back together. I I really do also like that they don't have the lyrics either fully baked or fully memorized. It could go either way. Um but it's like really charming to me that they don't. The same goes for um <laughs> the same goes for the other one later in the show. Uh the fact that it's like different and they don't have it fully formed it adds to adds to the charm. 
at 7.30, like right around that part, we get these like chugga-chugga bars from Jerry and Bob. Do. Bob is adding a little little gas around the edges. I like it. And I liked what they were playing with there. I called it the crunchier rhythm idea. And then at the first time I listened to it, I thought it was kind of like an awkward pause. I think what actually happened is like, there's a tape issue with the recording. Yeah. I would have liked to hear how that, you know, kept going for another minute or two. Um, But I liked where that, that was going. Yeah. There are a couple of tape cuts throughout the show. It's not, it's nothing major. Yeah. But um, it is, it is noticeable, but yeah, I, I, just thought this was a great version of the 11. For me, this is the highlight of set one, um, personally. Mm. We haven't gotten to mine yet. Okay. I, I, I mean, it's a great first set. There, yeah. like, I have an idea of what it could be, but there are still, what, three more songs? And I don't know. All are pretty good. So on some versions of the show, the next track is listed as Feedback. That's how I had it. And really, I mean, it's only like a minute. Yeah. It's really just kind of a jazzy ending to the 11. Yeah. That's what I was going to say is I don't think that it really needed to get its own separate labeling. It is just kind of like a jazzed up ending. If it, it fits, it fits nicely and it, it sounds good. There's a ton of activity going on in the drums in that little segment, um, which is, you know, I, I think sounded really good, but um, I'm not sure that it really needed to be listed as a separate track. And then into welcome back to the show, new potato caboose. That's right. The beginning to me sounds like a little bit of a false start from Phil and the drummers. Like Jerry plays the intro a second time. But I mean, it's not like jarring or anything. It's just like, I feel like they were meant to get right into it. And then Phil and the drummers needed to like recollect themselves and try a second time. But then they, they get right into it. There's some clunky parts of the song i feel like bob especially has like some fits and starts throughout it um but i mean this is a really good version of this song like pig on the on the organ is great in this song there's a moment around 135 where i wrote pig pen takes us to church it's like haunting <laughs> what he's doing on the organ um and so yeah i mean i thought that he was that that was like my first standout moment in the show was him on the organ. Yeah. Mine in this song was around the three minute mark. He kind of launches you into a pleasant jam, launches them into a pleasant jam. Um, it's most of the song is like kind of on the calmer and slower side, just compared to like them breaking the speed limit with dark star and China cat. Yeah. Um, but at the end, uh, Jerry kind of gets us back up to the marathon tempo they've been running. Yeah. I wrote um, in the beat, like especially the first half of the song, the drummers are just so laid back. They are just hanging out in the pocket, making a nice little home for themselves there. They do still take some chances and do some interesting stuff with Phil's and just what they're doing together, but it's real laid back. And then around six twenty five, Jerry has a pretty fiery guitar solo but then he kind of quickly steps it down a notch and gets us back into a more of a mellow part. And then at the end, like literally the last like 25 seconds of the playing, it's like almost Eddie Van Halen type of just like mm-hmm. shredding by Jerry, which was great. 
Um, and then it goes right into Born Cross-Eyed. Yeah, number 23, Caboose on Heady Version. Not not a song they played a ton. Um, no. I think they were done with it by next year, right? By 69. But yeah, into Born Cross-Eyed, which is also a song that they didn't play a lot live. Um, and I don't know about you, it's also tough to tell a little bit with like the tape quality and like we've talked about a little bit hard to hear the drummers, but I thought this was some of Billy's best work in set one. Yeah. I, I hear what you're saying there really quickly. I do want to note new potato caboose. They did only play it 35 times all between, um, though they played it allegedly once in 65. I don't think there's a recording of that show. Um, and then 67 through 69 for the the rest of the performances born cross-eyed they only played 12 times this was an extreme rarity this was the first time they played it live and they only played it a dozen times all between january and april of 68 so they played it a lot in this little four-month run and then never again but i think that part of what makes billy's drumming so good in this song is just how locked in like everyone is with each other he and phil and bobby and, and I guess Mickey too, because it's hard to distinguish which drummer is doing what, except yeah. for when it's like an absolute like marching drum, um, marching band snare drum by Billy. There are a couple times throughout the show where that happens, and it's like, okay, that's 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 Billy. That's what's going on there. Um, I think it. I think that um, it's actually in Spanish Jam when that's like most obvious. But they're just like so in with one another. I, I thought Phil and Bobby in particular were really, really together on this song, not just in their playing, but also in the stacked vocals. Phil sounds really good behind Bob. Um, and I don't know, this is just a cool song. Like like a yeah, lot of it is. A lot of like early dead songs are kind of like this where there are a lot of built-in changes and these like dramatic pauses along the way. It's mm-hmm. just like a measure or two measures that they like kind of pause and then they jump back in. Um, and it could sound very discordant if they weren't good at it, but they are really good at it. And so it sounds like very dramatic and just just really cool, I think. Yeah, I agree. Speaking of really cool, first ever Spanish jam up next. I think it's one of the best. I think, I mean, it's it's the longest song of the show, right? Isn't it like 15 minutes long? Uh, that sounds right. Hang on, let me double check. Yeah, almost 16, and then Good, Good Morning Little, Little School Girl is only 14. Yeah. Well, only. But yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's real worth it that they spent 16 minutes with this because it is so freaking good. I have notes about what everyone's doing on this song. So I said, um, Pigpen really surprises with a count dracula organ around one minute it's like like haunted house type of stuff like um drum major billy kreutzman with tight little drum rolls left and right just everywhere you're in the beginning like four minutes of the song if you just listen to billy it's these like really really tight drum rolls bob's got the spanish champ theme locked down down absolutely yeah him and phil are they're on it 
on it. Absolutely. Which is great because it allows Jerry just free reign to just shred his ass off. And so he doesn't need to feel like he can come. I mean, he does come back to the theme like throughout the jam constantly, but he's also unconstrained and can go hog wild wherever he wants to go with the jam because those other guys are all just holding it down. It's just excellent. But the most amazing thing to me is this is just like so intricate and well played for being the first time they've played it that it's just like remarkable to me. Yeah, I agree with you. And kind of to the point of the song as a whole, the song is kind of similar to Fire on the Mountain. Like there's only really two notes in the rhythm, like the Spanish. It's like it goes between like the one note and then the little half step up higher. And I think it it's to me, it sounds like if there's only two notes in a song, it would be very easy to get bored of it very quickly. But what Bob and Phil are doing on the rhythm, they're able to make this intriguing and not boring, despite it only being those two notes with, like you said, how just like locked in they are on it. And it allows Jerry to go off and have fun along the way. The first four minutes are interesting. At the five minute mark is when I thought the song like kind of took off to another level. Bobby is like flying on his like his hammer-ons and stuff in the rhythm. His rhythm is almost moving faster than Jerry's playing. And it's crazy. And then Phil is right there with him. Um, And then there was a really cool fuzzy ending, um, which was like another feedback nested in. So kind of like two in one set, which I thought was neat. Uh, The number 15 Spanish jam on heady version. And uh, something I noticed, it seems like 1974 is the year for this song. The top three versions are all from 74 and then uh, six versions are ahead of the song from 74, including those top three. Wow. So that's interesting. 74, a good year, but it all started right here in a a great one. Yeah. I think for me, the minute between the eight minute mark and the nine minute mark is my favorite part of the song. Um, Like you said, around the five minute mark, they start to like take it into the stratosphere and then I feel like and in that minute, if you listen to it over and over again, you can find highlights from everyone. Each person does something interesting. But great way to end set one with just a monster Spanish jam. Um Yeah, I mean I don't don't know how much more there is to say about it. Yeah. It's all I can laud as much praise as I want to onto it, but probably move on to set two. <laughs> set two is a bit shorter. It's actually quite tight. Um, set two, but it's still really good. A lot of uh, these primal dead favorites. Um, it it starts us off. They start us off with two songs from the Grateful Dead album: "Beat It On Down the Line" and "Morning Dew." "Beat It On Down the Line." Um, we need more cowbell. That's my first note. <laughs> um, it seems to me, Dave, like every square centimeter of audio space that could be taken up is taken up. <laughs> like there is. <laughs> and- and taken up by the organ, <laughs> which is yeah. good. Pigton is absolutely wailing on that thing in the yeah. song. <laughs> um, it's upbeat and fun, and it's like it's to the point I wrote. It's almost carnival esque with how like saturated the organ is, like a corn, like dee, 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 dee. <laughs> like it. That's it's like basically that with the beat it on down the line lick, and part of that you can 
barely hear Bob on the mic. Yeah. But it's that allows you to hear the crisp playing from everyone else. So not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but yeah, this was like all organ all day. Yeah. And then it comes crashing to a close at the end. I think that this song is um, extremely improved from the album version when you hear this version. Um, it's you kind of Bob's vocals are mixed pretty far down in the album version too, actually. Like you can't hear him super well on that, which is weird. Um, but yeah, I think that they play this song in a much more interesting. It's very straight ahead on the album. This version, there's a little bit more interesting stuff going on. And I think that the how forceful the organ is is a big part of that. But it's also, I will stand by this, Mickey on the cowbell. <laughs> it's the only time I heard a cowbell this entire show. I was like, where the hell did this come from? But Mickey loves him some, some you know, auxiliary percussion. Yeah. Um, Into another Grateful Dead album uh song after this we get morning dew like everything else it's quick <laughs> and just fiery what jerry is doing i think that he's really kind of setting the tone but like his guitar tone and the way that he's playing is just it's as fiery as it gets this is a really great morning dew i just really don't have a lot of notes on it i listened to it like four times and every time i was trying to like find something interesting to say about it it's just a good version of morning dew it's not particularly long it's not it's only six or seven minutes yeah yeah but it's just crisp well played and just really good yeah my i'll go out on a little limb and and critique it a little bit it's almost played so fast that you don't get the emotion from the song when it's moving a little slower and when Jerry can really like belt out those dystopian lyrics. So that's a bit of a bummer. It like it it passes by you almost too quickly for you to get emotional about it. Yeah. But having said that, the playing is so sharp and Jerry's first guitar solo was outstanding. Yeah. I I, I do feel that. I there is the way that they play it just using the Europe 72 version as an example, because I think that that's kind of like the, the gold standard quintessential one. Yeah. Yeah. The emotion that they, that is just like dripping from that version, how purposeful and patient that version is definitely stands in stark contrast to, to this one. I still enjoyed it, but it's, it depends on what you're looking for. Right. Um, but yeah, and it's cool. It's cool to hear it sound different. That was just my, my takeaway. Yeah, um, no, that makes sense. Um, okay. From, from morning dew, we get into the final goes into fest of the show. The next, there are four songs remaining and it's one into the next, into the next, into the next. So we get the, that's it for the other one. Sweet. So critical envelopment into the other one, back into critical, and then good morning, little schoolgirl, and that closes out the show. So um let's talk about cryptical and the other one. Let's talk about it as a suite. So we start with cryptical envelopment. The drums in like the intro of 30 seconds are just like everything you hope for to me in two drummer dead. They're so crisp and tight. The guys are really together, and it just sounds really great. I love that intro. Um and really, then- really cool offbeat drumming too like yeah. really kind of like it didn't make you uncomfortable but it was like 
kind of kept you on your toes. Exactly. And that's what I like with the two drummer dead is when it's, it's not just two drummers playing the drums. It's two drummers doing interesting and weird shit on the drums. Like um, one of the things that we talked to Zach about, when we were talking about 72, he was talking about what, you know, how they couldn't have played touch of gray in 72, for example. Right. And he was like, that song is more complicated than you think. Like there's too much going on for one drummer with two arms to do that song. And this moment at the beginning of cryptical was like that to me. I was like, Oh man, it's so cool that mm. they're doing this. Um, so I, I love that part. And then Jerry singing again, a bit Bob Hunter ish to me during this part, the, from, you know, he had to die. They go into the other one drop of a dime dive right in. Yep. And it's cool because the intro and transition into the other one is unique. It's unusual uh, compared to what that transition would be come to sound like and what i'm more familiar with it sounding like and i think it's because they didn't have the other one nearly down at this point in time um the lyrics are completely different than what it is now and what it was for the majority of them singing this song like some of the lyrics are the same like the heat came around and busted me for smiling on a cloudy day but the first verse is entirely different i don't think any of those words are the same um and so it's cool to get that too like that this unique you know embryonic the other one uh, i thought it was really cool yeah i think i found a website that has the alternate lyrics when i woke up this morning my head was not in sight i would ask the walls about it but they vanished overnight yep were the alternate lyrics uh the term that i used for this was attacking it with a casual ferocity mm. it's quick but it's not breakneck like china cat and the 11 and that morning dew yeah was like it's not really 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 fast uh, it doesn't sound like they're trying to kill it it's excellent it also just sounded like it was coming so easy to them like it felt yeah. casual but they were really getting at it but not to the level that they were not to the speed that they were with the morning dew right before it um and yeah it's quick there's not a lot to talk about. You blink and it's done. But there's what I thought was so cool, like perfect harmony in the final chorus between what, like how Jerry was getting it on the guitar and Bob's yeah. vocals, like basically hitting the exact same note. I yeah. thought that was excellent. Yeah, that was really great. Also, Pigpen deserves a shout out because the organ on this song is also great as it has been throughout this entire show. And then we get back into Cryptical. Um, good cryptical closing to this suite i think that starting right around the 55 second mark is some of jerry's finest playing of the whole show it's really excellent um just like the kind of incendiary sound that he's been working with the whole night but with this song in particular and kind of how dramatic it is um and these like i think that they are are technically arpeggios the do 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 he like brings it all the way around um in a way that just sounds great i mean i i really liked this this suite of songs being completely yeah, candid too. i wish they would have ended the show uh at the end of this song oh okay yeah hot um, take alert well all the candid that i think that this is the first criminally underrated uh masses heady version ranking of the show this is number 78 cryptical suite on heady version so i think that's a little too low because this is this is fantastic um 
That's really low. Yeah. One thing that I noticed too, you get a little elements of the Spanish jam from Bob and the rhythm in the second half of the song. Um, So kind of cool how, and I don't know this, but maybe like one little bit of cryptical helped influence that, or maybe, you know, incorporating Spanish jam into it helped influence the playing on this particular cryptical. But, um, but yeah, I thought that this, this ending deserved a little more love than it's gotten. So they played cryptical around 300 times. Uh, we talked about it when we talked about that 85 show because they played it like mm-hmm. those five times in 85 and then like 280 something or, or something like that between um, between the 60s and 72. So I guess that does still make it in like the top quarter. Um, so maybe that is more fair than I was initially thinking. But to me, it, it feels like this should at least be in like the top 50. Like I would have, yeah. if if this would have been on like the second page of Hetty version, like if it was twenty eight, I would have been like, okay, I can see that. Um, well, okay, all right. Well, hey, the masses have their opinion. Maybe part yeah. of what hurts it is that the recording quality is not like amazing. It's not bad. Yeah, that's probably uh, it. Well, and it's not bad for fifty five years ago. Like, yeah, when you factor that in, it's fantastic. It's incredible that we even get to hear it at all let alone hear hear it at like 80 percent quality yeah um but yeah i'm sure that that factors into it not being as high as i think it should yeah okay well the very last song of the show is good morning little schoolgirl." as we mentioned earlier it's the second longest song of the show and that's even with a cutout that happens around with like 245 to go the tape cuts this was the second of only three times that they played this song to close out the second set of a show. Oh, wow. So here's my issue with this song and why I said, I wish they would have ended it after cryptical pig pen sounds really good. Um, mm-hmm. singing his, I like his harmonica, but I just feel like this is like only okay. Like hmm. I, I, it's very rare that I would, criticize them for playing too long like i'm here for it whatever you guys wanted to do in the moment and now i get to listen to after the fact if there's more that's great but this just felt like it was a little bit too long of a version (laughs) to me there's not that much interesting stuff happening throughout the 13 minutes of this song um it just feels kind of repetitive at times and i think that jerry's playing is good but it's not exceptionally interesting when you compare it to what came right before it and i think the same goes for bob so well i'll try to frame it in a little more positive light unlike most of the rest of the show where they're putting the pedal to the metal they're in no hurry for the song they're just grooving it out nice and slow um so that's trying to frame it a little bit better that you know they just kind of grooved out and jammed it out and you know if it was eight minutes great if it was 10 minutes cool and 14 minutes all right i will challenge you no interesting things in the middle third of the song i thought there was cool there was a dance between jerry and then like the pig pen on the harmonica and then he put the harmonica down and then jerry and him on the organ were kind of going back and forth mm-hmm. i thought that was really neat that he was that pig pen was on it from you know multiple sources 
Yeah, I, I maybe the fact that he doesn't play a ton of organ on this song is also part of what I didn't like so much about it because I was so captivated by his his playing on the organ throughout the rest of the show. And then yeah, it's a fair when, point. Yeah. When he's singing, he's not on the organ. And obviously when he's playing harmonica, he's not on the organ. So maybe that's part of it too. But in any case, um, yeah, just not not my favorite part of the show. Yeah, it's fair. Number 25, good morning, little school girl school girl on Heady Version. And a comment that just I don't know really what it means, but I thought it summed it up really well. Okay. Psychedelic beef jerky blues. <laughs> Thought that was perfect. Okay, yeah. They played this song 89 times, so that puts it in the roughly top quarter of versions according to the heady version voter base. Where would you put this show? I mean, what do you think? We've probably talked about 15 Grateful Dead shows in the course of this show. Would you have this in the top third, middle third, or bottom third? I think... I think the middle third, but it's hard not to let the, I don't know what to call it, the cool factor of the debuts of so many cool songs affect my analysis of it. I think strictly like playing and set list wise, I put it in the mid, like near the bottom of the middle third, but it's so cool that they and I mean, in 68, Dark Star China Cat 11 was kind of a staple. And this is the first time you get all three of them in a run. I thought that was so neat. Um, I'll keep it in the middle third with like an asterisk that it's just cool. What about you? Yeah, same. pretty much the same thing. I could not have put it better. I don't think that it's the best playing. It's a very short show. It's only about an hour and a half long. Yeah, that um, that too. The biggest jam that we get is Spanish jam. There's not like a, you know, free form or like type two jam off of a song really that we get with the exception of Good Morning Little School Girl, with the exception of Good Morning Little School Girl, but even then it's off the back of a Pigpen rap and Pigpen is rapping while they're playing. So that hurts it a little bit, but I completely agree with you. The, the, you know, our friend Jim in Maryland, I think would say that this is a very worth it Grateful Dead show. And I would totally agree with that. I'm so glad that we listened to it. And yeah, um, I am, it's cool that we get to talk about it on its 55th anniversary. Right. It's so, we're so lucky that 55 years ago, um, Bear had the good sense to record this. Right. And that, somehow through geniuses and technology we're able to enjoy it yeah it's amazing but the question now is which one did you enjoy the most which song from january 17th 1968 are you bringing on to your imaginary playlist if you could only pick one song okay so i would take the 11 but I would I would use the last 10 seconds of China Cat as an intro. I would need that part on it because I want to hear the transition. Okay. You so can, just you just like that. five to ten seconds. It would be no different than like, you know, if I was gonna have um like live and love and made 
and Heartbreaker, you kind of need that transitional moment right. to capture right. its full glory. And I feel like you need the transition out of China Cat into the 11 to really capture it. So with that caveat, I would take the 11. What about you? I'm going to take that Spanish jam. I thought yeah. that was so interesting and unique and God, also the, the cool factor of it being the first time. Um, so I'm going to take that one. I will be honest. I thought you were going to take the cryptical. Um, that would have been my, my runner up. Good for you. Good the, for you. The I love the 11 and I thought this was a just a cool, weird version. Again, it's not perfect, but that's part of what I like about it. So, um, yeah, I'm taking the 11. Have I taken the 11 before? You have, and you've actually almost taken it twice. Um, yeah. You do already have an 11 from 1968, um, and then you almost had one from Dave's Picks 43, um, so and you talked to yourself. Uh, no, from the 68 half. Oh, okay. Or no, I'm sorry, from yeah, 69. 69. You're right, you're right. Um, so you... You talked yourself out of that one and into Dark Star. So you almost have, you have two and a half 11s on your. There can be no doubt then that the 11, <laughs> when it comes to Primal Dead, the 11 is just my speed. Yeah. I just dig it so much. I I do love this song. I mean, I was like freaking out about it when we saw it at City Field this summer. And I was like, Dave, what's going on? How does this song even work? I was like trying to wrap my head around 11 eighths time. Um, but yeah, it is really cool. I, I dig that song a lot. Spanish Gem is an excellent pick. It's really cool. I, I hope that when we get into some 74 shows, we'll get some with a monster Spanish Gem. Maybe that's something we should look out for is um, yeah. a, a 74 show with a with a big Spanish Gem that we could take. I will say this show is the beginning of a series of sh- shows that we're going to do throughout the year for anniversaries. You know, every year ending in a three or an eight, we're going to have a 55th and then 50th, 45th, et cetera, et cetera, anniversary this year. So we figured we'd start with the earliest in 68. Yeah. And then um, I think that the next anniversary show that we are going to do, if I remember correctly, is going to be a 73 show in February. Um, There are a ton of good ones for us to choose from. And then in March, we were going to do... um, March or May, I don't remember which one, but we have a 93 show that we're going to do. So with that being said, if there's a show from 78, 83, um, 88 that you think is, you know, warrants our attention and analysis while we reach its anniversary year, let us know. We we're open to suggestions. We're going to try to hit one from all of those years. You know, it would be what's that, six? years yeah six, it would be six six different years ending in a five or a zero for their like the, the the anniversary is ending in a five or a zero this year um with the earliest being the 30th anniversary of 93 and then this one being the oldest so yeah let us yeah. know we'd be open to to suggestions but yeah this is a uh this is a cool one any other final notes dave while we try to land this plane just get in touch with those suggestions we're kind of on twitter kind of not anymore at working man's pod uh instagram working man's underscore pod yeah and then a new one is we're on mastodon and i'm going to tag you in to help me out so on mastodon we are at 
workingmanspod at heads.social. So if you are a head who is looking to use some sort of a social media platform that's not Twitter, uh, check out Mastodon. It's a decentralized way to do social media. And um, it's pretty interesting. There are a lot of uh, good heady follows out there, but we are at workingmanspod at heads.social. And if all that social media talk doesn't interest you, you can do some old-fashioned email, workingmanspod at gmail.com. Feel free to reach out to us that way if you would prefer. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you guys for joining us in the new year, 2023. Um, we are excited to to be with you again this calendar year. All right. Well, on that note, we will bid you good night. That's it, that's it. You got it.